Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. Um, but I'm not going to do that today. Uh, and you might say to yourself, why is he not doing this? There's uh, two reasons. Number one, uh, th- there's been some stuff that's like been stirring in me that I want to do some preaching on that's completely fresh from things that God has been saying and working in me, particularly in the last year. But two, Aaron is sick today, and she can't tell me no because she's sick. And so, Aaron, if you're listening to this podcast later on in the week, you're a sucker. I got you. Uh, I want to invite you to stand, if you will. Uh, We're going to be coming out of Isaiah chapter 43 today. Isaiah chapter 43, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 19. Uh, It will not be coming on the screen, uh, but I will be reading it. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and the reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Two words that we're going we're gonna to keep coming back to a number of times today. Um, wilderness and wasteland. Those are the two words that we're going to be hitting over and over again. Wilderness, say wilderness, and wasteland. We're going to keep coming back to them, so remember them. This text that that we're going to be wrestling with today is ultimately about the promise of how God is sending a Savior that is going to put back together everything that's broken, everything. Every shred of everything that is even, like, just a little bit off, he's going to put back together. Um, But this new thing that that we're talking about in this verse, the thing that we're going to see is that it goes much further than anyone was thinking. Um, There is a man, uh, and his name was Abraham Kuyper. It's Jonathan Chan's favorite, favorite person. It's not really, but he he likes Kuyper. Uh, And this is what he said. Maybe you've heard this quote before. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Now read that again. Just kind of let, let this sink in, what, what, what he is trying to say. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, cry out, mine. So this new thing that this verse is getting at, it went further than we ever had imagination for. So th- this, is, this is what I want to say. When we are found in Jesus, not only are we raised from death to life, but his very spirit is living in you. You know this. We talk about this a lot. His spirit is living in you. That means that wherever you go, in all of the places where you live, you work, you learn, or you play, there he is too. Every place. And all the places where you are not, there he is too. Because there is no, there's no place, there's no place over which he is not sovereign. There is no place over which he is not Lord. There is no place where he does not raise and supreme. There is no place where he does not see human existence and say like, that's where I am. 
because he is the word that was made flesh and moved into the neighborhood. But this is the great thing. This is the great mystery. Not only that Jesus is already at work, but Jesus is working through the whole domain of our human existence through us. Through us. Because where you go, he is. So here's a simple but profound thing to think about as we start tonight. God is always doing something new. Will we join him in what he's already doing? He is always doing something new. Will we join him in what he's already doing? Let's pray. Lord, would you, would you move our hearts tonight in accordance with whatever it is that you're doing, with whatever it is that you want to say, with however you might want to move us? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, today, we're, we're talking about two things. What are they? Wilderness, wasteland. And I'm just going to tell two stories today, and then we're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land it on some practical stuff. Um, one of the stories is going to be shorter. One's going to be a little bit longer. And they, just for a little context, are about old white dudes. So wilderness and lace, wasteland. So there was a man whose name was Thomas Rakes, uh, and he was born in Gloucester, England in 1736. Like I said, old white dude. Um, and when he was old enough, he inherited his dad's uh, publishing company. They, they printed newspapers, like this regional newspaper thing. One day he was visiting a friend. He had just inherited this publishing company. Um, and what, what he saw in this little town that he was visiting, is there were a bunch of kids. They were probably like 10 years old and younger. Uh, and they were just running around in the middle of the street. Um, and all of a sudden, they started hitting each other and fighting, and they were cursing, and they were gambling, and it was essentially like a sea of chaos with these dozen or so kids right in the middle of the street. And he asked his friend about this, and he's like, like, you, would, like you would be shocked if you saw all the things that were happening with these kids. Um, his, his friend went on to explain that actually, like on this particular day, it wasn't that bad, but you should really see what happens on Sundays. It would blow your mind. Uh, and this is, this is the quote. He said, They behaved in a most unrestrained way, which is a wonderfully British and Victorian way of saying, man, it gets out of control here. Um, so I think it's, it's hard for us to picture today, uh, but if, if, we, if we're rewinding 300 years, we have to remember that this is a time, right as the Industrial Revolution is happening, um, where children, if you are eight years old or older, like, you are going to be working six days a week, and you are going to be working from sunup to sundown. And you are not probably going to be farming. You're going to be in a factory. So when we think, like, what are these kids doing six days a week, we should be thinking sweatshop. That's what they're doing. 12 to 16 hours a day, six days a week. So it's going to be years, decades, before there are a couple of laws that are passed in Britain. And what those laws are going to do is it's going to cap the amount of hours that a kid can work at 12 hours in one of these swap shots. And that was considered progress, right? So for these kids, just, just think about this. Their life, if we're going to define it, was largely defined as being a wilderness and a wasteland. So what, what, for Thomas Rakes, he couldn't get these kids off of his mind because what had really happened is like they had sunk into his heart. I started to have conversations about what, what they could do. Um, and there was this core idea that kept coming up and coming up and coming up. And it, it was this, what if, 
we use the only day that these kids had off. And what we do is we, we teach them to read. Uh, because you might, I mean, it's the same thing, and it's been this way for a very long time, that when you, when you, when you actually get a child who hasn't been exposed to education before into an educational process, you don't just expose them to education, you also expose them to networks they may not necessarily have access to other than that. And so 300 years ago, it's the same story. But what Rakes did is that he actually brought a, a new way of thinking about this. And he's like, look, when, when someone goes to church, this is 300 years ago, you have to wear what's called your Sunday best. And a Sunday best is an expensive suit-like thing, whatever suit-like things look like or dress-like things look like 300 years ago. But if you weren't wearing it, you weren't allowed in the church. So if you don't wear it, you aren't allowed in the church. The question is this, what happens if you don't have the money to get that? What happens? And so the paradigm that he brought was this. What if we remove the barrier? What if, if a child's clothes were suitable for the streets, then they're suitable for anything that we do that has to do with Jesus? So in July of 1780, the first Sunday school class opened. In July of 1780, the first Sunday school class opened. And these, like the classes, it looked like the day of Sunday school, it looked, it was a whole day, and it looked like this. They would come in for breakfast, And they would show up for morning educational instruction. They would be dismissed for lunch. Then they would come back for a worship service. Then there would be another class. Then there would be another class after that. They would give them a snack, and at 5.30, they would dismiss them. And this is what they would say. Leave quietly and don't make a sound. And they all did. They all did. Perhaps, this is is just fascinating, the most brilliant thing that Rakes came up with was this. The way that we're going to teach these kids to read, we could, we could use Shakespeare, we could use Chaucer, we could use this or this or this. This is what we're going to use to teach them to read, the Bible. That's what we're going to use. And so at the same time that Sunday school in 1780 is opening, Rakes is getting a small group of people together to start fighting like, around legislation for what it would look like to change like, the educational systems in their day. Well, but what he was able to almost seamlessly do is that he brought two things together that we very rarely see come together into the church anymore. Justice and evangelism. Justice and evangelism. And he did that without government intrusion, without the government doing it, without intervention, and without subterfuge. And it started with one class in one town. A couple dozen kids. 20 years later, What had started with a small group of kids had grown to 200,000 people. By 1831, so 50 years later, after the first class door was opened of this Sunday school, more than 25% of the entire population of the country was in a Sunday school class. And all of them, every every week, were doing two things. They were learning to read, and they were learning about Jesus. That was it. Those are the two things that Sunday school did. You're going to learn about Jesus, and you're going to learn to read. Every week, by 1850, two million kids were in a Sunday school. Two million kids. Now, you, this, was in, this is in a whole other country, right? And it's across the Atlantic. So you know that something else happened. So the embers of the fire of what it is that was going on in England spread and caught wind in this newly forming, like, experimental thing, both for good and for bad, called the United States. And to this day, one of the, one of the things that is credited for like turning the tide, just as we were talking about today, 400 years later, 
of like slaves coming for the very first time. One of the things that is credited for turning the tide in this country and the conversation that was happening is the Sunday school movement on these shores, on this side of the Atlantic. Now, here's the thing. We have only known Sunday school for what it's become. We don't know it for what it once was. And this one relatively very simple innovation, fanned into flame by the winds of the Spirit, became a movement that changed the trajectory of two countries on two separate continents. The Spirit of God in his people moved into the whole domain of human existence. And for these kids, their life, whether we're talking about physically or whether we're talking about spiritually, it was defined as a wasteland and as a wilderness. But this is what the text says. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams and the wasteland. Perhaps God is wanting to do a new thing today. Story number one. Second story. There's a, there's a man named Bill Wilson. Um, and he is, is sort of like a 23-year-old wunderkind, um, which is like a German word for, I don't know, wunderkind. It means something. But he was, it was kind of like a Swiss army knife of abilities and bullheaded persistence. Um, he was dashing. He's like roguishly handsome. He's lanky. He's charismatic. Um, and he had rec- he, he's from a very, very poor family. And he recently, in 19, uh, as a 23-year-old, he had married into a very, very wealthy family. And one of the things that, that was very upfront about is like, I have nothing to do with God, and there are only two things that I love. I love my country, and I love the Navy. He is very similar to my father-in-law. Um, and he was making a name for himself on Wall Street. And when he was a kid, Wilson had become obsessed with this inventor that all of us are probably familiar with. His name was Thomas Edison. And so he invented the light bulb and literally a thousand other patents. So a prolific inventor. He would, say, he would take a candle and at night he would read the biography of Thomas Edison. He would then get up the next morning. He would read about the thing that he had invented, whether it was a phone, whether it was a, uh, not the phone, but whether it was a phonograph, whether it was the light bulb, whatever it was. And he would take the thing apart and then try to reassemble it. Obsessed with Thomas Edison. So a few months earlier, after he had gotten married, there was a, a, uh, an ad that Thomas Edison had placed in New York City. And he's like, he had this theory that there is a group of people who are exceptional and incredibly bright, and the educational system had failed them. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to find those people, and he was going to give them a test, and he was going to see if I'm going to find the best and the brightest, the educational system has failed, and then I'm going to put them in my own personal lab. Bill Wilson was one of these people who took this test. A couple of months later, there's a knock on the door. He opens the door, and there's a reporter that's standing there from the New York Times and asking him how he had achieved one of the highest scores on Edison's test that anyone had, ever, anyone had ever taken. And he was being offered a job in the inventor's own personal laboratory. So think about this for a second. This is, as a little kid, under the covers, he has a candle. Probably shouldn't have a candle under the covers. They catch on fire. He's reading a biography of Thomas Edison. He's taking apart these different inventions. He's putting them back together. This is like a, what's called like a moment of convergence. Everything is finally coming together in this incredibly poor kid's life. And Bill Wilson simply never responded. He never, like, he didn't respond to the reporter. When Thomas Edison reached out to him, he didn't respond. 
When he reached out again, he didn't respond. You see, around the same time that he took the test, Wilson was introduced to something else, and it was called a cocktail called the Bronx Bomber. And for Wilson, it was the beginning of the end. And so over the next few months, Bill Wilson began to descend into a life of full-blown addiction. So there would be periods of brief sobriety, and then this would be followed by days or weeks or months for him of binge-like drunkenness and addiction that he could not beat. His will was not strong enough to beat. For anyone who's ever been addicted to anything, you know what this is like, whether that is drugs, whether that is alcohol, whether that is pornography, whether that is sex, whether it is this or this or this. Like, what, like there is a power that this thing had over him, and he could not break it. In 1922, he gives his, his new wife, he gives him the family Bible. And on, the, on the, the flap of the Bible, this is what he writes. For Christmas, I make this promise. No liquor will pass my lips for one year. Within two days, he broke the promise. For 14 years, Bill Wilson was completely at the mercy of his alcoholism. And he tried everything to stop it. Everything. So he went to church. Church didn't work. He tried meetings. The meetings didn't work. He and his family spent all of their money on these 20th century treatment centers. It didn't work. He found someone who thought alcoholism was a disease, and the way that you treated the disease was by addicting yourself to something else called barbiturates. If you know anything about barbiturates, you know that that didn't work either. If there was something to try, Bill Wilson tried it, and none of it worked. All right, so one night... He's living in New York City, and there's this place that's across town called the Calvary Mission. And a a group of people who are all struggling with alcoholism were going to this place. And he goes there with them, and there's warm coffee waiting, and he shared a meal with them that was warm beans on a metal plate. And a preacher took the stage, and he asked this group of alcoholics if they wanted to be saved. This is what he said, just come to the rail and accept Jesus as your Savior. That night, this is what what Wilson was saying to himself. This is what he said. If there be a God, let him show himself. And this is what he says. Suddenly, the room blazed with an indescribable white light. I was seized with an ecstasy beyond description. Every joy I had known paled in comparison. Then, seen in my mind's eye, there was a mountain, and I stood upon its summit where a great wind blew. A wind, not of air, but of spirit, and great clean strength, it blew right through me. Then the blazing thought came to my mind, you are a free man. And that night, Bill Wilson met God, and he never drank again. Now that makes a good story, right? It's a nice story. It's very neat. It wraps up in a bow. We can probably turn that into a movie and put it straight on the Hallmark Channel. But if we think for a second that it was because of one powerful moment at the Calvary Mission where Bill Wilson met God, it means that we do not understand what God was doing in and through Bill Wilson the previous 14 years. Was that the night that was like the line of demarcation, like, From this night on, he didn't drink again, yes. But there was a lot of stuff that God had been up to previous to that and a lot of stuff that God was going to do to keep him in that after that night. You see, he had spent all of his money 
and most of his in-laws' money for 14 years trying to stay sober but never succeeding. But inside of those stories, there are all of these things that he was being exposed to. There are all of these things that he was starting to learn. And all of these things, there's this guy named Stephen Johnson, um, and he writes on the way that innovation happens. And what he does is he calls them slow hunches. There are these things that like, it's not like there's a light bulb that goes on and you've got this amazing idea and immediately it works. It's that over time you're exposed to more things and exposed to more things and they, they start to connect to each other. Things that weren't connected are starting to connect. And what was happening with Bill Johnson is that God was using these different moments and different experiences and pulling them into a person's life that, at one point, we're disconnected, but we're starting to connect together. So a couple of these things that, that were disconnected previous to him. Alcoholism is a disease. So th- that's something that he was exposed to. Dogmatic rules and regulations don't work. Just try harder doesn't work. Meeting in groups is vital. That we need simple steps for a way forward. That a belief in a spiritual experience of the divine is essential. But the thing was that these ladders, I mean, these ideas, they weren't connecting to anything. They weren't laddering up to anything. These were all things that Bill Wilson was, was picking up along the way. Not in theory, not in, in a way that looked good on a piece of paper, but in the laboratory of his own life. Because what was starting to happen is that here was a man who was finally staying sober. And that was not a common thing. And so if you are someone who wants to be sober and you can't, and you see someone who couldn't but now is, what are you going to do? Like, you're going to learn from them. And so what he started to do is he started to get these people together. And he started to put some of his theories to the test, standing in the power of his newfound sobriety. And this is, this is the quote, kind of describing this period. He applied those theories to his alcoholic followers with the systematic interest of a laboratory technician. Who does that sound like? Thomas Edison. What if, what if God had been with Bill Wilson his whole life and didn't just meet Bill Wilson at the Calvary mission when he had a vision on a mountaintop and a voice saying, you are a free man. What if God was there all along? What if all these different pieces that he needed God was sprinkling in and pulling together. What if God is intimately involved with every domain of human existence, that there is nothing that he looks at in his sovereignty and says, it's not mine, it's all mine. Now, here's the thing. You never actually want to call something like the final puzzle piece because it never quite works like that. It's never like when something extraordinary happens that it always works like that. But there was something that happened in Bill Wilson's life that in many ways was like the final domino to fall for what God was going to use. So he is, he is really, really having a difficult time with his sobriety. Um, and he, there was a man who had reached out to him, and his name was Bob Smith. Bob Smith was a surgeon, and Bob Smith couldn't stop drinking. Um, it got so bad that as he's doing surgery, he's still drinking. And he had heard that there was this man named Bill Wilson who, who had finally kicked all the drinking that, he, that had dominated his life for 14 years. And Bill Wilson is, is on his way to meet this man, to give him some good news, hopefully to give him some hope. And he passes this hotel called the Wayfair Hotel, excuse me, the Mayflower Hotel. 
And part of the Mayflower Hotel, there's a bar. And it's one of his favorites. And he's walking to his meeting, and he sees the hotel, and he sees the bar, and it's as if it's pulling him into it. But by the grace of God, he's able to stop. He almost breaks. And he manages to stay out, and he goes and meets Bob Smith. And this is like, the, like that, that last domino to fall, and this is what he says. That night, Bill Wilson told Bob that he was not there to help him. He, Bill Wilson, needed help. He could, not, he could only get it from another person who had a drinking problem. He had hoped that Bob could help him. This is the idea, like, if you're, if you're familiar with 12 Steps, if you're familiar with sponsorship, this is where sponsorship starts. Because Bob Smith and Bill Wilson would go on to form an incredibly powerful friendship. Incredibly powerful. And a couple of years later, about 18 months later, they would found something called Alcoholics Anonymous. So we, we, we might have heard of 12 steps. We might have heard of sponsors. We might have heard of regular meetings. We might have heard of phrases like one day at a time, or you've got to work it, and all these different things. And it all starts in one relationship with Bill Wilson and Bob Smith because one man managed to get past that night the Mayflower Hotel bar. And tens and tens and tens of millions of people will find freedom from addiction and freedom and life in Jesus. And it started with the wilderness and the wasteland of Bill Wilson's life. Because God was doing a new thing. Brothers and sisters, I want to I suggest um, that in this church and in each and every one of you that God is at work. Um, and he is doing something new that will bring hope to the wilderness and will bring hope to the wastelands. Uh, there's this thing called exhortation. We've talked about this before, but I'm just going to tell you what it is again. Exhortation is not encouragement. It's a different thing. Exhortation is the ability, like the the spiritual ability, to see what it is that God is already doing inside of someone's life or in a group of people's life and to pull it out and to name it so they can see it. That's what exhortation is. It isn't, you're a nice person. I hope you feel encouraged. It's, let me tell you what I see God doing in you because you need to see it. And so what I want to do is I want to name three things that I think God has been up to in this community already. And I want to exhort you. And the purpose of me exhorting you is to, we can like pour gasoline on that thing. If there's already a fire going, it's that we want the fire to just go kaboom. So I want to, I want to explain three ways that I think we, we are currently yielded to the spirit. And I want to ask and collectively ask that we, the Spirit would give us more. Uh, the first is this. If you want to put up the, the next slide. That you would ask God for eyes to see what he's already up to. If God is doing something new, then you have to see what it is that he's already doing. We have said this over and over and over and over and over again. And you will hear us say it over and over and over and over again. In John five nineteen, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. What is God up to in your life? 
What is he up to here in this church? What is he up to in this city? Ask him for spiritual eyes. See what he's doing and join him there. The first thing that we want to do is ask God for eyes to see what he's up to. The second is to use the laboratory of your own life. Use the laboratory of your own life. God wants to do things through you, but he first wants to do those things in you. I'm going to say that again. God wants to do things through you, but he first wants to do those things in you. Whatever gospel innovation you sense God is calling you to, start it at your own table. Thomas Rakes was not looking to change two countries and two continents. He was looking at a couple of kids who were in front of him and were like, I know where this goes. Bill Wilson was not trying to spark a movement that would reach 100 million people in 90 years. He was just trying to stay sober. Like, what do you want God to do for this nation? What do you want God to do for this city? What do you want God to do for this neighborhood? The question that we have to ask, is it starting within you first? You've got to use the laboratory of your own life first. The only way that God is able to multiply something out of that is if he has started by doing something in you before he starts to do something through you. He's not interested in doing something through you that's not in you. He's not interested. He doesn't need you. He'll use a rock. Genuinely, he doesn't care. He will not use you, period. He wants to do things in you, and out of the overflow of that, something can happen. Thirdly, is the last one. Celebrate when people try to innovate something for the sake of the gospel. Celebrate them. Whether it works or not. Now you might be saying, like, what? don't we want things to work? Absolutely. But here's the thing. In Christianity, success is not whether something works. Success is obedience. And so there's this maxim around what, pe- what you celebrate, people repeat. And the thing that we want people to repeat is obedience to Jesus. That's what we want more than anything else, that we're able to hear what God is saying, that we're able to see what God is doing, that we have the integrity of starting something at our table first, using the laboratory of our own life, and then to celebrate that they have been obedient to Jesus. That is what we want to repeat. And so whether it works or not, it doesn't matter for the sake of this spiritual family. What matters is that we are obedient to what it is that Jesus is calling us to. So may we celebrate when people try because they are obeying, not because it's working. Now, we can, we can debrief stuff, and we, we want things to work, but first and foremost, are we acting out of obedience? So this is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and the horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. So think about, they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Think about what it is that the Sunday school movement did. Never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Think about what it is when someone who is addicted to something, when they finally, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of community and the different things that come together, what it is like when they now have power over it. 
never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I.e., are you not able to see it? Do you not see what it is that I'm doing that God is saying? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with this comment, and then I'm going to hand it over to David uh, to say a few words, and then we're going to set up for communion. Uh, I've, been, I've just been fascinated, like personally, like this has just like been a, a, a journey I've been on in the last year um, of reading just hundreds of stories at this point of the way in which like God brings things into existence that weren't there that are like historical examples of the way this idea of like God is up to something new. Um, I, I love the story of the Sunday school movement, uh, but we've only heard part one of it. And I'm not going to give you the full part two, but the, the, the second part of the Sunday school movement is that it dies. Because what happens is in the 1870s, there are a bunch of laws that are passed and it makes kids go to public school. You are now required, like you can't work, you have to go to school. So if all these kids are learning in places where they hadn't been before, and they're now learning to read, what's the point of Sunday school? And there's a shift that happened. It's like we do Sunday school because we do Sunday school. The mission of Sunday school was lost. Remember, the mission was to see kids who Otherwise, we're not going to get a fair shake at life. Who otherwise were always going to be in this place that society had dropped them. Was there, were there still loads of kids who were in that position? But we became less committed to that vision and more committed to Sunday school. And so the question that I think we have to ask over and over and over again, what are the ways that we in our own lives as individuals, disciples, or we as a collective, as a church are more committed? We do this thing because we do this thing. But we might have lost sight of like the vision that God had birthed in the first place. Because the reason to do it is still there, but maybe the way that we need to go about it should change. And that is true in our life as a disciple. There are going to be times in your life where th- there is a period of a couple of months or a couple of years where by doing this one thing, by, part- by reading scripture in this way or listening to these kinds of songs or praying in this particular way, it brought such life to you. And then, for whatever reason, it didn't. And so is it, are we committed to those things, those practices, or are we committed to like, no, I want to connect with Jesus. That's the vision. He's the vision. Whatever it needs to change, I will do that thing. Does that make sense? It is so easy for this to shift in us. Where as things change around us, we lose sight of why we were doing something in the first place. And the opportunity to reconnect with the heart and the vision of what Jesus is up to in you, in your family, in your friends, in this neighborhood, this city, this nation, in this world. That's a different talk for a different time. A little preview at some point. I don't know. Yeah, let's take a moment just to kind of see what the Spirit's saying. Uh, Silence is a good opportunity to kind of 
open open ourselves up to listen to God. So let's actually do um, let's kind of change our postures, kind of sit straight up, feet flat, maybe um, have your hands just kind of open. If close your eyes helps you to concentrate, but just you know, just going to give us like two minutes just to to get some silence and just see what the Spirit might be saying. Lord, there's some brothers and sisters here who are um, struggling um, both in the wilderness um, and the wasteland. And they might be in the midst of that 14-year journey, but don't know how long it is. So Holy Spirit, um, I pray that they won't be scared of the silence. That they will lean into the stillness that they will know that you're there. As Scripture says, if we go to heaven or we make our bed in hell, you are there with us. I just sense that there are folks that um, have, could say that same thing in their own lives. I pray that you would help them to know that they are there. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um. Thanks, Doug. That was a really um, insightful, gifted uh, word. And I think it's true. I think there's some things in our personal, individual lives where I think that could be true. Um, it's it, like life oftentimes makes sense in the rear view window. You know, it's hard to see where you where you are through the front of the window, but it's kind of when you look back, you're like, oh, this is what God was doing. I also think this is also a word for our church East End Fellowship. Um, Marcel has asked me the question, says, why, why are you dressed like Willy Wonka today? And uh, <laughs> I was like, I guess so. <laughs> uh, the reason why is because I, I was um, preaching at uh, another church this morning, and, you know, it just took a little while for me to get here and um, came here to church on time. But it's interesting because... Um, you know, when I preach at different churches around the city, sometimes you end up seeing people who used to go to East End Fellowship that aren't here anymore, you know? And um, one of the things as a leader um, at East End, man, we bless people coming in and we bless people going out. Like, you've never heard uh, um, a leader trash anybody for leaving. Um, and And if you ever do, let us know because they'll be rebuked from the other elders. Like, um, but I, I think East End goes from wilderness to We spend a lot of, and, and maybe for some people, might even feel like a wasteland at times. Um, and, but I do know we spend a lot of time in wilderness uh, trying to figure it out. And I really was appreciative of what um, Doug said, that success in Christianity is not, that we get it right all the time, but that we be obedient. And sometimes in the midst of obedience, you just spend time in the wilderness getting a lot of things wrong, 
um, not being able to, to do certain things or just not like you want to be able to serve everybody or just to do all the things or to even just do the simple things that you feel like is on the mission. And I'm telling you, man, as leaders at the church, I mean, we oftentimes don't feel like uh, – sometimes I just feel like it's it could be a lot of, quote, quote, um, failed experiences than there are actual, um, like, successful experience experiments. And – but when we get down and we pray, we just feel like at least like, – like, like God saying that we're being obedient to the thing. And we don't always know what that looks like. But um, I just sense it. Like, I just sense, you know, I just sense, again, like the Spirit's doing another transition, you know. Um, and I think it's it's something that I think this is not just a word for people, uh, for individuals. But I also think this is um, a word for just us as a community. So just listen through this again. Like, ask God for eyes to see both what God is doing at East End uh, as a community Let's use the lot the lab of our life together. Um, what is God saying and us just doing life together? We run and we just like run into each other all the time. We kinda of live over top of each other. Like when you try to get away, then you see somebody at the Starbucks that you thought nobody went to. Like, you know, like because you were trying to get out of church here. Because you know people you're gonna see somebody at front porch. Not to say that ever happened in my life, but um but how do we see the the lab of kind of our life together. And then one thing that we could do, I just see this all the time. I spend a lot of time in a lot of um, faith communities. At East End, man, we try. Like, people try. People ask me all the time, they say, David, how in the world do you do what you do with white people? Like, like they ask me, I'm asking this question probably weekly. Don't you ever get tired of um, white people? And um, and I say, man, well, you know, I mean, there could be some. There are a lot of people that aren't trying. But one thing I can say, the white brothers and sisters that I journey with here, they try, you know, and we try with each other, you know, and and we just keep on trying and keep on trying. And, um, man, that's just something that God's, God's doing. This is a community of people that try. So I think we really should celebrate that and um, and not just only take that as a personal word. The last thing before we do communion, um, it seems like God's been doing something around addiction. We got NA. I've been hearing different people um, give testimonies of overcoming sexual addictions. I've heard people give some of um, physical addictions, um, um, you know, drug, alcohol. I mean, it's just a lot. You just don't know who it is. And it's across class. It's across races. Um, there's a lot of addiction, particularly in upper, like wealthy upper classes. Um, they just know how to like keep it under. They had the money to keep it on, on the DL more, you know. But um, that's something that guys are doing. And you know, if you want prayer for that, there'll be people on the side um, that you know will be praying uh, with you and for you. Uh, don't feel like you got to put that in the closet. Um, the reason why you don't hear a lot about the things that people struggle with is because we really believe in confidentiality. When you confess things to to us as leaders, I mean, a lot of times um, the other leaders don't necessarily know because we really try to really, really um, just help people be on that journey. But it's not a sense of 
it's, it's being addiction and being uh, whether it's a sinner or having some kind of addiction or whatever the case may be, it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of. We all are addicted to something and really need the grace of God in our lives to help deliver us. So just want to encourage you to um, engage in that prayer at this time of prayer and reflection. So just as, as you take communion, what's so beautiful about communion is the time of just being reminded that the body is broken, that Christ's body was broken for our healing, and that the blood of Jesus gives us life. And so I'd love for you to pray for three things maybe during this time, just whatever the Spirit leads you. One, just kind of your own personal journey, whether you're in the wilderness, the wasteland, that the Lord would just kind of help you to be obedient, faithful, and not be discouraged for not trying. Um, number two, I want you to pray um, just for um, the East End community, for what, what whatever God is doing. Um, I could tell you, I think we, we, I think as leaders we're seeing some things, but the window ahead is a little foggy. We're seeing the glass dimly, but I think we are seeing some stuff a little bit more clearly, but we just need prayer, you know, and and, um, and we also need to discern through the river mirror what God has been doing. And then lastly, I just want you to pray for just folks with addictions, you know, that um, the principles of that kind of AA that we need to believe in somebody greater than us and uh, we need some folks to journey with and and just that we need to have a community of confession that just keeps it real and journeys together we pray that this is the kind of place that folks can be delivered so the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And everyone ought to examine themselves, therefore, before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's just an opportunity for a reason why we try to do this often. Is it's just time to do some self-examination. And it's not that we are doing a self-examination to see are we worthy of this. What we're doing is a self-examination to see um, what, how the Lord might be at work, what we can confess to the Lord. But then to come to this table in humility, knowing that the Lord is going to uh, bring some healing uh, to us if we so desire. If we can get the servers um, that are up to 